Now after this, the Lord appointed seventy others and sent them two and two ahead of him in every city and place where he himself was going to come. He was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. And whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. And whatever city you enter, and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And heal those in it who are sick, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. So, here are some who, in contrast with what we were just looking at, are obedient. The Lord gets these 70 and sends them out in pairs to all these cities and so forth. Wonder why 70? Seven times ten. Yes. What else was in 70? 70 elders and... Numbers 11. What else was in 70? Destruction of Jerusalem. <laughs> A.D., yeah, that's true, but I think that's probably irrelevant. <laughs> that was the only thing that was in 70. Yeah. That more. Yeah. <laughs> Good point, yes, that's exactly right, you hear that? Uh, what else was in 70? This one isn't said to be in 70. Years of exile. But it was. Yes, that's true, that was said to be in 70, the years of exile from Jeremiah. I'm thinking of one that does not actually, doesn't spell out 70, but when you count it, it's 70. It is. What's the number of times that the word Lord is used in Genesis? <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. No. It is. 35 and 35? Through the first two sections, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right about Some that. Some generations from somebody is No. The table of nations, the descendants of Noah in Genesis 10, there were 70 descendants of Noah that populated the world. <laughs> And I think this is probably a reference back to that. You know, you send out a full number, all 70, to go all over, in this case the nation, but foreshadowing the ministry to the Gentiles. Um, interestingly, the Septuagint in Genesis 10 has 72 nations mentioned, 72 descendants, and several manuscripts right here have 72. I think 70 is the better rendering. But 72 is a possibility. Some of your translations probably say 72. That's a really debated issue. Uh, I wouldn't make a big deal about that, but I thought that was interesting. Um, he has them sent out because the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. And, uh, you know, I appreciate the fact Jesus had so much vision for the harvest. Jesus really saw the need to spread the message. And... How, I mean, I, I, I don't have a lot of experience with a lot of crops. My big experience is with sweet corn. 
I knew that well. We planted it all through the growing season, you know, through the spring. So we had little patches coming on at different times. You know what, when we were trying to pick and keep the demand supplied and, you know, you just couldn't hold a patch off. I mean, when it came on, it came on. And most of the time, if you waited 10 days, it was hard. You know, even a week sometimes was too much to wait. A lot of times you had a three, four day window that you could pull it and keep it tender anyway. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think there's that sense of urgency. Man, the harvest is now. There are people dying without knowing the Lord. Um, you know, and we need to pray for laborers. And uh, we need a lot more sense of this mission mentality. You know, we're not just keeping house for God. We've got an urgent mission to fulfill. So in three, what's he saying about the wolves? What are wolves? False teachers. Yes, and or persecutors. Persecutors, yeah. I think he's saying there's danger. You're going to need the Lord's protection. Um, and when you go, how should you travel? Verse four. Light. Light, because the worker is worthy of his wages. Okay, for one thing, they'll take care of you, who you're preaching to. And for another thing, if you travel light, what does it enable you to do? Go fast. Go fast, yeah. I think, uh, you know, you just get, get on with it. Don't waste time packing your bags and lugging it around. And greet no one on the way. That sounds rude. <laughs> what does that show? Focus. Focus. Remember anybody else in the Bible who was told not to greet anyone on the way? The prophet. Who was the older? The older prophet. The older prophet. Was well, that's not what I was thinking of. Yeah, maybe so. Who? Who? Who else? You got this one, Timothy. No, they was told not to go back and eat dinner with her. Right, right. It's not to stay. Yeah, right. and, and the other young prophet. I'm talking about one that he said, uh, if you meet anyone, do not salute him, and if anyone salutes you, do not answer him. And lay my staff on the, guy, on the, on the lad's boy, face. Elisha yes. Elisha and, Elisha and one of those Gehazi. Eli guys. Yeah, one of those Eli guys in Second Kings 4. Yeah, and the idea was the same thing as this urgent. You don't waste time saying hi. Get over there and put my staff on his face. Because that didn't end up being the way he was healed. But, uh, but I, I think the idea is, you know, we got a we got a job to do. There's a lot of things about these chapters and about Jesus that really show urgency and not getting overly distracted by things that are of lesser priority. You know. Be rude if you have to. There are things that are more important than, you know, saying hi to everybody. Now, there may be some good things about saying hi to everybody, too. You know, as you try to reach out to them with the gospel. But the point is, your goal is not to be nice to everybody. Your goal is to help people go to heaven. So I, I think that's just really, you know, intriguing. Um, so, you go to a city and what do you do? You go into a house. You pick somebody and you live with them. 
And what do you do when you enter the house? Bless, it's like blessing the house. You bless the house. You put a blessing of the Lord on the house. But what if the people prove to be unworthy? You take it back. The blessing won't take it away. You know, I mean, it's not magic. And so if God knows they're not worthy, it won't, it won't have any impact. Um, and what do you do when you're in the house? Eat and drink what they give you. What if you don't like it? Eat and drink it what they give you. <laughs> exactly. You know, what if you think you're wearing out your welcome? Keep eating and keep drinking. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, that's very much the idea. You can see why people would feel kind of bad, you know, I'm being a parasite. No, you're giving them the gospel. Eat, eat what they give you. Don't worry about it. Sometimes we're overly finicky about, like, being a burden on somebody when we've got something to do that's important. That's a challenge. We shouldn't be selfish. But there are times when we need somebody to help us. You know, I mean, I have used people to do different things that I just need to get, to get the job done. I didn't have time to do it because I was doing something more important. And I'm like, would you mind doing this for me? You know, I do that in Brazil quite a bit. Uh, and did when I lived there. In the U.S., things are a little simpler. It's not quite as necessary as much of the time. Sometimes it is, though. And sometimes we just need to impose on people. You know, there's things that are worse. I mean, don't don't get bent out of shape over the fact, if you're really serving the Lord, if you're really doing His will, if this is really a mission for Him, if somebody is put out, they're put out. You know? I mean, don't be rude, rude. But, but you don't have to apologize all over yourself for really giving yourself to God and somebody does something for you. You know, don't be abusive. Don't, don't take advantage. That's not the idea. And don't do it for selfish purposes. These are people who are giving themselves to God or they're just living to preach. And, and, but don't be picky or finicky. You know, it's the gesture of hospitality that counts, not the comfort and the luxury. You know, and, and I think that's a problem for us. I mean, I really think... I mean, I, you, I don't know that Debbie remembers this era, but I didn't eat any meat other than hot dogs, believe it or not. <laughs> until I was about 13. Now it's about the... Hardly alive. Now, 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 right. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, uh, you know, now I would think hot dog is the lowest form of meat. Um... <laughs> And I didn't eat anything other than the things mom cooked, basically, until I went to college. I mean, I didn't eat anything green, other than, you know, maybe she had a green jello thing she did. I didn't, I don't think she did when I was growing up very much. I don't remember. She had that asparagus casserole, I did eat that. Green beans with almonds? That's been since my time. Yeah, she didn't do that one. Yeah. You, you remember her from these recent times. So when I went to college, I just made up my mind, nothing tastes like, tastes like home, and I just need to eat this stuff. I gotta eat it. I started eating everything. And it was really good for me. Can you imagine what it'd be like traveling all over the place and being finicky about what you eat? I mean, it's an insult. And it's just unnecessarily burdensome. Even to me. It's like, forget it. Just eat it. You know, I like some things better than others. You know, some things I think are safer than others. I'll try to eat more of those. <laughs> but whatever. Eat it and don't worry about it. 
I, I just really think you have to do that. I mean, and I got served some weird stuff in Mozambique. You know, like pigeon and I think it was goat liver and you know whatever. It, it, that was the luxury. That was when I was at the head table. Oh no! That was not. That's a whole other story. But uh, you know, I mean, it's just better to eat it. Don't worry about it, and, and just realize, wow, we get so bent out of shape over things that don't matter. Who cares what the food's like? Who cares what the bed's like? You know, who cares what the temperature's like? You know, I understand. There may be some people who've got allergies. You know, they're, they're deathly ill. So I'm not saying, you know, there aren't some things to think about. I'm just saying, if it's just a matter of my comfort and luxury, put up with it. You know, we get concerned about our personal space. Go to Brazil. <laughs> and you'll lose that quick or die. You know? I mean, there's a lot of things that they don't matter when it's all said and done. You know, you can survive. And eventually get used to it. You know, it's kind of like, well, if everybody else here lives that way, I guess it's possible to live that way. You know? Some things don't smell good. Thankfully, I don't smell well. <laughs> more than one way, but, uh, you know. But but I, I, I appreciate Jesus' emphasis on that. But now, what happens if they go and the city doesn't listen, don't, doesn't receive them? What should they do? And what should they do when they leave this one? Wipe the dust off. Even the dust. <laughs> Not just the soil. Get the dust off your feet. It's like saying the Lord's rejecting you. You know, and it'd be more tolerable for Sodom than for that city. Can you think of Can you believe that? I mean, what about Sodom? How could they, they be worse than Sodom? Worse than Sodom? Well, there was a lot in Sodom. Yeah. Sodom didn't reject Jesus. Amen. I think that's the point. You know. Ariel <laughs> Smith. <laughs> She was got one. <laughs> <laughs> Are we competing? <laughs> what happened to Tasha? Oh, I don't know. Tasha. She's not there anymore. Uh, it's okay. Um, I thought the thing went away, but I was no, wrong. it's there. Um, so I mean, you know, if Sodom, you know, can't escape judgment. What about this city? I mean, think about how Jesus is just such. I mean, he's in a different category. You know, the privilege of having Jesus so enormous that to, to reject a messenger of Jesus is to outclass Sodom in the League of Sinners. You know, that's, that's, that's amazing. That's a really thoughtful thing to say. And, uh, but really rejecting Jesus is the most serious thing you can do. So the greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. Thoughts and comments through verse 12. There's a lot there, I know, so. Talking about in like verse 7 here. About you stay in the house and you don't go from place to place, and I was wondering if that could also be like a sense of urgency, in the sense of 
if you're there for a while and you've worn out your welcome, maybe you've worn out your welcome, it's time to go to the next city instead of finding another place in that city. That way you don't stay. Well, I do think there place. was an urgency of going. I, I do think that's true. I'm not sure that's the point of that, but I think there is. Jesus wants a message spread. Go get it, get out there and get spread. And he would, Jesus was coming along behind as well. I mean, that's where he could get to. Yes, yeah. I mean, there's definitely in the in the New Testament, spread it, spread it, spread it. And I appreciate there being more of a mentality right now to get the gospel spread than what I remember there being. As a younger person, I still feel like at 59, I have very little historical perspective. Uh, and I remember reading that like in the late 50s, maybe, like at a place like Florida College, that the young men were kind of like, I'm going to go to this country. I'm going to go to this country. And some of them did. Um, but I appreciate, you know, in our time, more and more young men starting to think more seriously about learning a language and go. I mean, Sean Reich is, for the last, what, three years, has been uh, determined to go to French-speaking West Africa and, and live there, and I think we'll do that one of these days. Um, you know, probably not quite ready yet for various in various ways, but when he is, I think that's, that's what he'll do with his life. What a blessing. I mean, he's working on French. He's going to French meetups and speaking French with people and all that. Not because he has this passion for the French language. He has a passion to get the gospel spread in places where we don't really know of there being faithful Christians. You know? You can't do everything. But you can go somewhere. Now, not everybody has to go. Somebody needs to say. But, but you appreciate just this mentality of send them out. I was just talking to a friend this morning uh, about a church. Uh, I don't know if this is public information yet, but a church that has decided to send a young evangelist working for them to another city to start a church and then to eventually move back and be a part of them. You know, I would think we're talking about maybe a decade kind of an idea. I don't know exactly. Uh, what, a, what a concept. We're going to support you. We're going to send you out, spread the gospel in this difficult place, and then come back. And probably then send you out again. Some other difficult place. That That's the mindset that we ought to have. Thank you for giving me that uh, opportunity. Other thoughts on all this? I don't know if I've ever really noticed or thought about the concept that he sent them out to places that he himself was going to come. Right. You know, so <laughs> he sends out an advanced team. 35 groups, and then he's going to hit all those <laughs> same places. So we don't quite have all the records. We don't, yeah. And I don't know that... I mean, from Mar Matthew 10, sounds like they weren't even going to hit all the places that w would be ideal. <laughs> Jesus wants the message everywhere. Everybody needs to hear. All right, how about uh, 13 to 16? 
Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For he who hears you hears me, and he who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So again, it's the idea of how terrible it was to receive the visit of the Lord, see the miracles of the Lord, to have the presence of Jesus, and yet reject him. That's the worst thing you could do. Again, the more light we have, the more responsibility, and the more serious the judgment if we reject we who know, we just have every possible advantage. It's just uncanny what we've got. Think about, I mean, you just can't, you can hardly even imagine all the blessings God's given us. We live in the new covenant, so we know about Jesus. You know, we have an incredible access to the Bible, like unbelievable access in all kinds of translations. We have a bunch of them in our homes. They're available digitally in all kinds of translations and helps and whatever. We have all kinds of Christians around us that we know that have studied for decades and they can teach us. And all their materials available online to the point we couldn't possibly, if we listen nonstop, hear all the really good stuff that's available. We have so much blessing in being able to do that. We have electric lights. You know, we have labor-saving devices. We, we are just blessed. You know, what responsibilities do we have? We have so many ways of divulging the gospel, communication tools. I don't think we are taking the kind of advantage of the blessings God's given us. Um, so, I mean... If, if Tyre and Sidon had had the privilege that these cities had had, they'd have repented. You wonder if Tyre and Sidon had had the privileges we have, wouldn't they have repented? Yeah, a person who faces the Word of God has an enormous responsibility. You know, and basically, if we listen to the messengers of God, we listen to God. And if we reject them, we reject God. Thoughts and comments? Well, the result of this mission, 17 to 20. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Okay. So the 70 come back, how are they feeling? Elated. Yeah, because? The demons were subject to them. Which, you know, he says, well, uh, I, I was watching Satan 
fall from heaven like lightning. What does that mean? that some the the minor the minor evil beings submit to you I saw the you know the epitome of evil being cast down so you know I could rejoice over that perhaps so what did he mean by that they did a good job <laughs> well okay their work is part of a bigger picture? I think so. You know, I mean, what is Jesus' mission? Isn't it to cast down Satan? And isn't the expelling of the demons kind of installment A? I mean, that's that's a first stage in being able to, to, to bring Satan down. I don't think this is talking like a lot of people think it is about the original fall of Satan. It's amazing how much we know about Satan. <laughs> I say that facetiously. Um, you know, people people have come up with elaborate theories as to how Satan came to be and how he came to be Satan. What does the Bible say about that? Not much. Not much. Does it say anything about well, do you think it says anything about the origin of Satan and how he came to be Satan? I think we you, infer everything we know. We've got passages that people hijack for that. Like Isaiah 14 that was talking about the king of Babylon. <laughs> or Ezekiel 28 that was talking about the king of Tyre. But that's where it talks about Lucifer and falling from heaven and all that kind of stuff. But it was talking metaphorically about those kings. You know, maybe there's a type-antitype relationship, but it seems a little odd for there to be type-antitype stuff working on the side of the evil. You know, type-antitype seems to work better on the side of the Lord. So, I mean, maybe there is, but I don't see a strong reason to think that operates that way on that side. Like a foreshadowing. So, like, is there a sense in which the fall of the king of Tyre or Babylon is kind of a you know, a facsimile of Satan's original fall. You know, maybe, but I think that, I don't think we've got evidence to back that up. That's got to be kind of our conjecture. It would be like an aftershadowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but what would that be? Uh, Flashback. Uh, a post-shadowing. <laughs> um, you've got Revelation 12. But Revelation 12, I believe, where he talks about Satan being cast down out of heaven. Was talking about when Jesus died and was raised, and he was cast down in the sense he could no longer accuse God's people of sin because of the blood of Jesus. So I don't think that's talking about the origin of Satan. That we haven't come up with anyway. I think there's one verse that sort of alludes to the origin, or at least to the fall of Satan. In Genesis? Nope. There was a war in heaven? Nope. You will will never guess where this verse is. Give us a clue. It's in the New Testament. Nope, nope. First Timothy. See, see what you think about this one in that line. You've never, you may never have thought about this under these circumstances. It's in the qualifications of elders. <laughs> First Timothy three six, and not a new convert, so he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. 
Is that an indication that the devil incurred condemnation because of his conceitedness? Maybe, but you wouldn't be forced to say that from that verse. You're not forced to, but I do think that's what he's saying. Don't don't appoint a novice so it doesn't go to his head and he fall because of his arrogance like Satan did. I think that's what it's saying. So the only other way to uh, explain it, I think, would be that the devil condemns him. But the devil condemns him? I think this is more the condemnation, not that the devil cat puts on him, but the condemnation the devil received because of his conceit. So I actually think that passage may slightly allude to some sort of a fall of the <laughs> devil because of arrogance. But that's not the passages normally people go to. Yeah. Well, in Luke 10, it would be a complete non sequitur if Jesus suddenly starts talking about the origin of Satan after that. Yes. I mean, there's no reason for him to be talking about that. And he doesn't say anything about it afterwards either. So, <laughs> so it makes more sense to take this as kind of spelling the defeat of Satan. He's seeing in what they do something greater. You know, this casting of demons leads him to think about Satan actually losing in the battle in Revelation 12, perhaps. In the sense that he's going to lose his ability to accuse men of sin, those who are forgiven by Christ. Notice what he says in 19, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. So he's saying, you're going to be able to overcome and to tread on the serpents, on Satan. Does that remind you of anything? Genesis 3. Genesis 3. You know, <laughs> there, when, when, when somebody kills a snake, one good way to do it is to step on his head. And if you stepped hard on his head... It would bruise your heel, but your bruising of his his head would be fatal. And so this idea of treading on the serpents and scorpions, I think God is going to get, Jesus is going to gain the victory over Satan to where we gain the victory over Satan and Jesus. Remember the New Testament passage that talks about us treading on Satan? Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So I think that's an allusion back to that. The idea that when Jesus gained the victory over Satan, that wasn't just Jesus' victory over Satan. He gained that victory for us so that we do not have to give in to Satan. So that we are victorious over him as well. Does that make sense? So I see that he really sees a lot in what they did. On the other hand, verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. I mean, just the fact that they were able to cast out demons, it looks like they were almost giddy with excitement. Look what we could do. Well, the important thing is not that you can cast out a demon. The important thing is that you're going to heaven. You know, that you've got a relationship with God. Sometimes we get kind of skewed in our thinking. We're more impressed with some great spiritual accomplishment and more excited about that than the fact that we have a relationship with God. The spiritual accomplishments are not the thing to be the most excited about. And maybe they even let the demon casting out sort of go to their head. 
look what we can do, kind of a thing. Thoughts and comments on this section? All right, how about 21 to 24? In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows uh, who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Verse 21 is interesting, isn't it? What did God, uh, what did God do with these, uh, these things? He hid them. From? Wise and revealed them to? So what's the deal with that? That seems kind of, almost seems like he should have done the other, right? You know, reveal them to the wise and intelligent and hide them from the babies. He does the opposite of what we'd expect. Why is that? Is it the wise in their own eyes? Yeah, I think the idea is people get too big for their britches and they can't see it. It's really the humble, the lowly, the people who are moldable and dependent and don't think they know anything that really receive it. Look at 1 Corinthians 1. You know, consider your calling. Not many wise are going to the flesh and noble and things like that are called. So really, the Lord made it to where it's more simple-minded people more uneducated people who get it. What do you think about that? So, what would you say about people saying, well, you know, maybe like somebody's not smart enough to understand the Bible? It doesn't. And really, what's the what's the most dangerous thing for the smart guy? Maybe a couple things. One would be to think that you can figure it all out and that you're doing it on your own. It's you who's, you know, science. The reason that you that you know all this is because you're so great. Not that it's so simple that even a child could figure it out. And so you are impressed with your own knowledge and your own understanding, your own learning. So, you know, people who have a lot of letters after their name and things like that can get to where they think, we just we just know so much. You know, they get so impressed with all that they've come up with, all that they've understood, and all the learning in a worldly sense that really is bogus if it's not based upon what the Lord says. I mean, one ounce of thus says the Lord is worth a whole bushel full of human theories and opinions and philosophies and all that. The Lord knows way more than we do. The other thing is, when smart people come to the Bible, what's their temptation? To try to pick it apart. Yeah. 
they're almost smart enough to figure out their way around it, to come up with loopholes and ways of re-engineering it to come up with things that, that fit what they want or make something that impresses people because they've come up with a special super-duper doctrine and things like that. Sometimes intelligence can be a barrier in that sense. And, uh, you know, you think about, you know, people who, um, you know, like get really good or they think they are in like Greek or Hebrew. And usually just smart enough to shoot themselves all over the place. <laughs> you know, because they don't really understand it, but hey, what, what it really means is, and you know, I, I, people just do that at every level. You know, what I've noticed recently that's kind of funny is, is, is people doing that with the margin in their Bible. You know, in the margin of your Bible, sometimes you got literally, or, or it can be, and people are saying, well, you know what that really means is, well, all they're doing is quoting from the margin. <laughs> and that may be helpful sometimes, but sometimes they don't even understand that. And it gets worse when they go to the interlinear, or they go to the word study dictionary or whatever, <laughs> and they don't understand it, they don't know how to use it, and they come up with this, and it's like, Oh, no. You know, it's like, you know, imagine that that some foreigner just learns a little bit of English. And you say, I'm feeling blue today. And he goes back and tells everybody in his country that this has to do with the sky. Because the sky is blue and you're feeling blue. And he goes into all this dissertation about what it really means. No, it doesn't doesn't have a thing in the world to do with the color blue. But if you know just a little bit of English, you think it did, you could come up with this theory. I don't know. Do you ever think color blue when you say I'm blue? I realize it's kind of an dated expression. But when you say, uh, you know, I'm going to St. Louis, any of you really think more than about, a, you know, a tenth of one percent of the times about St. Louis? <laughs> We don't ever think that. But somebody who knew a little bit about English might come up with all this thing about, you know, St. Louis and how every time we use that, we're thinking, no, we're not. So I'm saying a little bit of understanding sometimes, you know, worsens us because we really don't know what to do with it. And somebody who's simple-minded and just takes it for what it says and doesn't try to come up with some intellectual thing who studies it carefully, but who studies it, not who tries to be intellectual about it, may really know a whole lot more. So I think that's helpful. You know, Jesus says in 22, you know, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So really, the only way to know the Father is by the Son. You know, I mean, can you believe... Can you imagine a mere man saying that in verse 22? That would be such a blasphemous thing to say if you weren't God. You know, that no one knows me except the Father, and no one knows the Father except me. I'm the only one who really knows God. And the only other ones who know really know God are the people I reveal God to. I mean, Jesus makes statements. You cannot say Jesus was a merely good man. He was just a good teacher. 
he said things that no good man would say. If I said, I'm the only one who really knows God, and I'm the only one who could reveal God to you, that would be absolute blasphemy. And nobody would listen to me. It would be patently absurd. They still listen to Jesus. Because he had the credentials that made that not seem weird. <clears throat> Thoughts and comments through 22. All right, I'm going to stop here at 22. I don't have a whole lot of voice left anyway, so. But we will, uh, I should be here next week.